O Father, exalt our Lord Jesus to us from this, your living word, by the work of the Holy Spirit, who delights to glorify Christ. Humble us before him, raise our love and our reverence for him to new heights. Make the gospel and its promises and its threats clear to any who do not know you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, starting in chapter 21, verse 23, Jesus is in a confrontation with the leaders about his authority. They come to him, they, these creatures, come to him, their creator, demanding where he gets his authority from. It's kind of a funny scene when you think about it that way. But they've come to him demanding the source of his authority, and rather than giving a straightforward answer, he says, well, let me ask you a question. Where did John baptism originate from? Was his ministry God-given, or was it man-given? And they just didn't want to answer that for political reasons, because their eye was on man, not on God. And so uh, Jesus takes them to task. He lights into them about John and how they did not listen, did not repent, and others were entering the kingdom of God rather than they, because they did listen and did repent. And he tells a, a, a three parables, actually, to just pound on them, uh, one after the other. The first we saw last week of the two sons. Father goes to each and says, go work in the vineyard. The first, said, his first son says, I just don't feel like it, but then later relents and does it. Second son says, you bet, I'm your guy. And he never goes. And, Jesus asked which one did their father's will. Well, obviously it was the first, the one who said no, but then repented. And the Pharisees said no, but they never repented. And so after pounding on them a bit there, uh, pointing out that the traitors and the trollops were going to go into the kingdom of God before they did, Jesus tells them now a second parable, and that's what we're looking at today, a much longer parable, the parable of the workers in the vineyard and the messengers sent to them, and he's intensifying his barrage on them. So this uh, passage falls very simply into two parts. The first, let's look at, it is the parable, verses 33 through 39. As Jesus takes them right into this, the second of three parables. Roman numeral one, the parable, verses 33 through 39. And he begins very simply with the introduction in verse 33, and I've translated it for you from the Greek text in your outline. Hear another parable. So we start with a command. He's telling them to listen. Hear another parable. He's talking to the same people. This is addressed to these same leaders. Hear another parable. Same group, same theme. There was a man, a housemaster, such as planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to tenant farmers and went on a journey. So note, first of all, the audience. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the same people. Now, this may seem obvious to you, but this is actually very important for understanding what Jesus says. And there's going to come a point where Christians have very different opinions, but if we remember this fact, it's going to really help us understand that verse. Keep you in suspense till then. But let me point out verse 23. He came into the temple. When he came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up and confronted him. The chief priests and the elders of the people. And then you saw at the end of this parable, verse 45, the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, heard his parables. They knew that he is speaking concerning them. So both can confirm and, and uh, reinforce that these parables are addressed to who? to the Jewish leaders, to the religious leaders in the nation. So this is going to be an important parable. Of all the parables of Jesus, there's only three parables that are repeated in all three synoptic gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and this is one of those three parables. So we'd best pay attention to it. That's uh, now take us to the, the setup. Jesus sets up his parable by a series of verbs here, six to do with how he prepares his vineyard, this housemaster. There is a man, a, a housemaster, and our, 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 we're to envision here a wealthy landowner. It was not uncommon for a wealthy landowner to own several properties and to lease them out to people who would develop them and work them, and then he would profit off of the harvest from these uh, properties. But obviously he had to be very well off to do this sort of thing, and that's this guy here. He 
planted a vineyard. This is his investment, and it's quite an investment, as we'll see as we go through this verse. He took great care to set it up properly. He planted a vineyard, so the seeds are in. He also put a wall around it. So this is a wall that's either a hedge or it's a wall of stones, like we can see here in Texas. You can see some great ones in Scotland and around the world. A wall whose purpose was to keep out the wild animals from coming in and grazing on the crops, and also to keep robbers from coming in easily and stealing from the, the produce. So he put a wall around it. He also dug a wine press. Now, a wine press would have had two parts, the upper part where the wines are stomped on and crushed, and the lower part where the juice of the wines flows, and the, the juice of the wines, the juice of the vines, the grapes flows, and the, uh, the uh, grape juice and the wine is taken from that vat. So he dug a wine press in it with its two parts. He built a tower. We found many stone towers in the land of Israel. The purpose of these was to watch out for animals coming in to uh, ransack the vines or to watch for robbers. And also the tower could double as a shelter for the workers in the vineyard when the rains come and the weather is inclement. And he rented it out to tenant farmers and went on a journey. Now, as I said, a man like this might have several properties. He might have this property and then go live in the city and enjoy the comforts of the city while others work his vineyard. But so he does. He rents it out. And this would have to be a, a long-term rental. Why? Well, because it, it was likely to be four years between the planting of the vineyard and his getting any harvest from it. So you can see he's subsidizing the work for four years. This has got to be an investment of somebody with plenty of resources. And then when the harvest comes, a 50% share was a pretty common arrangement as he'd lease it out to vine dressers, to tenant farmers who would work this land, and then they'd harvest it. 50% would go to him, 50% they would keep after the four years of working. But of course, he retained total control over it. It was his vineyard. He planted it, he owned it, he owned the harvest of it. That's also important to keep in mind in order to understand this parable. Now, this parable would have, should have immediately sounded familiar to the hearers. Turn to Isaiah 5, if you can easily. And we'll see a chapter that starts out very similarly to this parable. Isaiah chapter 5. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. This is rather daring imagery. The prophet Isaiah is calling Yahweh, his God, my well-beloved. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the middle of it and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he hoped for it to produce good grapes, but it produced worthless ones. And he goes on to tear it down because of these worthless grapes. So the two parables start out very similarly, don't they? The planting and the preparing of a vineyard. But then they go in different directions. This chapter is about the fact that the crop was bad. That God was looking for righteousness, but in instead he found iniquity and bloodshed. Those were the fruits that awaited him, not the fruits of righteousness and justice that he looked for. Uh, but in Jesus' parable, it doesn't go to the direction of the nature of the crops. It goes in the direction of the nature of the crop dressers, of the tenant farmers. So it starts out very similarly, but takes a shocking turn. And as we go through the parable, we'll find out that the parable becomes more and more shocking as well. It's a shocking story. But in this case, what is the vineyard? Well, he says within this, he says that, let's see, it is uh, Jerusalem, verse 3. So now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah... So he's addressing Jerusalem, he's addressing Judah. And so Israel as well, verse seven, the vineyard of Yahweh of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, his delightful plant. So now there is another parallel between this chapter and Jesus' parable. What is the vineyard in Jesus' parable? It's, it's Israel, it's Judah, perhaps even more specifically Jerusalem where he is right now, where he's ministering and speaking at this time.
So there's the introduction. <clears throat> Letter B, we have escalation. E-S-C-A-L-A, -A, escalation. And there is an escalation within this passage. It starts bad and gets worse and worse and worse. And unsurprisingly, it's in three parts, as Jesus and Matthew are very fond of presenting things. And there are, off, there are threes within the three. Each three part is a two-parter. So three pairs of parts in this parable. We have the first outreach in verse 34 and 35, the first movement of this first outreach. The householders send servants. And when the season for the fruits drew near, after four years or so, he sent his slaves to the tenant farmers to receive his fruits. Now this is exactly as should be. He's waited, they are his harvest, it's his harvest, it's his vineyard, so he sends slaves to get his share of the harvest. Now, uh, fruit, that's a big thing in Matthew's gospel, isn't it? That's a big thing in Jesus' teaching. What, what does John the Baptist say in chapter three when he calls on Israel to repent? He says in, John, in Matthew 3, 8, therefore bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. What does Jesus say towards the climax of the Sermon on the Mount, speaking of false prophets, Matthew 7, 15, and 16? He says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. And he, ha he hammers that again and again. And what had he just done? He came up to a fig tree looking for what? Fruit. And that represented Jerusalem. And it was judged in a representation for Jerusalem's failure to bring forth fruit. So this parable, I'll, I'll do some interpreting as we go through it, is almost allegorical. Not everything means something else, but, some, but the parts, many of the parts do. The vineyard represents uh, Israel, or more specifically Judah, or more specifically Jerusalem. Well, then who are the slaves who are sent to it for the harvest? Well, these represent the prophets who've been sent by God. They are God's slaves, the, the prophets. We'll look at that more closely in just a few moments. But they are sent, and what's the reception that they get? Well, there's the second movement. The tenants beat one, kill one, stone one. Verse 35, and the tenant farmers took his slaves, and one they beat, and one they killed, and one they threw stones at. Now, this is outrageous behavior. This is unheard of. Outrageous behavior. It's his vineyard. It's his grapes. They're just tenants there. They're just renting it out and working it for a share of the produce. But when he sends his slaves, they abuse them all. They even kill one. They throw stones at him so as to kill him. Now, in real life, that is where the story would end. Because the landowner would contact, like we'd either send a hit squad out there to take care of them himself, or he would contact the authorities who would go take over, try these people and condemn them. But that would be the end of the story. There wouldn't be another movement. So here's where there's a twist. Here's where the parable takes an outrageous turn to make a point. There's a second movement. Number two, a second and greater outreach. He's outreached once with an outrageous response, and so he reaches out again rather than pounding them into dust at this point. And again, it's in two movements. First, we see the householders sending more servants, verse 36. Again, he set other slaves more than the first ones. As I said, th this just would not happen. I mean, it would be like you're in a uh, culture where people accept the need to discipline children, and you tell a story about a child whose parent says to do something, and the child says no, and stomps his feet. And then the parent says, oh, please, won't you do something? And the child stomps his feet more and throws things and breaks dishes. And then the parent says again, oh, please, please, won't you do what I want you to do? And the child hits the parent and kicks him and calls him names. Now, what would the audience of disciplinarians, how would they be feeling hearing this story go on? When are you going to spank this child? Don't put up with this kind of abuse. This is outrageous. Why is this story going on? And that's exactly the way the hearers would be thinking at this point. You send more slaves and they get abused just the same way as the first group of slaves was, even though there are more of them. And yet this is what God did with his prophets. When he sent prophets and they weren't listened to and they were abused, what did God do? 
He sent more prophets. He sent more prophets with the same word and the same message. And how are they treated? Well, verse 36 says, same as before, yet they did, to, they did to them likewise. They're acting as if they own the vineyard, and they do not. <laughs> They're acting as if it's theirs to do with, and they own the, the, the fruit, and they control the terms. But none of this is true. They don't own a bit of it. They don't, they don't own any of it, ultimately, except by a rental agreement. So this is incredible long-suffering and incredible, literally incredible patience on the landowner's part. Nobody would do this. But Yahweh did do this with Israel. Yahweh did do this. Turn to 2 Chronicles 36. Fairly easy to find. And I'd say, remembering our, our New Year's sermons, if you don't turn to these books because you just don't know where they are, well, then you know you've got what, what one of your goals for this year is to learn where these books are. So 2 Chronicles 36, it's the end of the book, and it's actually the end of the Jewish canon. The, the Hebrew books are in a, a different order than ours, and this is actually the last book in the Hebrew canon. So uh, we're in 2 Chronicles 36, and look at verses 15 and 16. Now, this is the end of the history of Israel before their judgment uh, in, and exile. And Yahweh, the God of their fathers, sent word to them, what do we read? Again and again by the hand of his messengers. Why? Because he had compassion on his people and his habitation. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of Yahweh arose against his people until there was no remedy. He sent again and again and again, but there was an end to his patience. There was a deadline. The prophet Jeremiah sounds this note quite a bit. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7, and we'll look at verses 25 and 26. Maybe a little more. Jeremiah 7, 25. Since, now Jeremiah is one of these prophets who was also sent and also abused. Since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, centuries, I have sent you all my slaves, the prophets, daily rising up early and sending them. There's a very vivid, like God gets up while it's still dark and sends his prophets out to speak his words. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck, and they did more evil than their fathers. You shall speak all these words to them, but they will not listen to you. So more of the same, another prophet speaking to them and also being ignored. Same book, chapter 25, Jeremiah chapter 25. And start with verse 4. And Yahweh has sent to you all his slaves, the prophets, rising up early and sending, but you have not listened or inclined your ear to hear, saying, turn now everyone from his evil way and from the evil of your deeds and live on the ground which Yahweh has given to you and your fathers forever and ever. But, and do not walk after other gods to serve them and to worship them. And do not provoke me to anger with the work of your hands and I will bring no evil against you. Yet you have not listened to me, declares Yahweh, in order that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own evil demise. But don't you hear echoes in Jesus' parable? He sends his slaves, the prophets. The landowner sends his slaves to the vineyard. And what about this evil end? Is there going to be an evil end in this story? Spoiler alert. Yes, there will. But we'll get to that in just a second. But note some of the lessons we learn from the parable and from Yahweh's dealing through the prophets. One lesson we learn is that Yahweh can be incredibly gracious, long-suffering, patient. Now, I say advisedly he can be. But if somebody knows a great deal better when he does what he does, that's not to be assumed. Ask, um, oh, I've just gone blank. What are, what are uh, the sons of Aaron who tried strange fire, who got creative with worship? What were their names? Well, now I'm just preaching to the right church, aren't I? Nadab and Abihu, thank you. 
they found that out, didn't they? They, they did their little creative worship and they were, they were crisped immediately. So don't assume. And yet, Yahweh can be incredibly gracious, merciful, and patient. And so he is to them. But the second lesson is, there is an end to it. The, the, the hourglass is running. The sands are drifting. The, the clock is ticking. And the number gets smaller and smaller as Israel discovered. And a third lesson to learn is, even still, he went further in sending more than prophets. He sent prophets. He sent prophets. That was a great thing. They spoke his words. But that isn't all God sent to Israel, is it? And that next part is what we find in the next part of the parable. Number three, the third and climactic outreach. We saw the second and greater outreach, verse 36. Now the third and climactic outreach, verses 37 through 39. The householder sends his son, verse 37. But afterwards, he sent to them his son. Sent slaves, sent slaves, sent his son saying, they will show respect for my son. Now, at this point, the hearers would be besides themselves. This, this story has gone so badly off the rails. It's just making no sense now. Why would he send a second group? And it having failed, why would he send his son? Now, this is meant to make a very shocking, vivid point about the mercy and the judgment of God. So this last final measure and notice that after this there is no escalation notice what again what how Jesus says but afterwards you could also translate that in some verses do finally this is the end of the chain this is the last delegation if you will there's not going to be another delegation after the sun the sun is the climax and what does that make you think of it's it's hard not to think of Hebrews Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, right? God having spoken in many ways, in many portions to the fathers, in the prophets. And the last of these days has spoken to us in the Son. And in chapter 2, he's going to say, you'd better listen to him. He is God's final word, God's final messenger. So forget about Muhammad. There is not another messenger after Jesus. Forget about Baha'u'llah or any of the others who claim to be newer, better Jesuses or Christs or Messiahs or or what have you, prophets. This is the climax of God's movement. This is God's final word in the parable, the sending of the Son. There's nobody after. And so we see what they do with the Son in verses 38 and 39. But the tenant farmers, when they saw the Son, said among themselves, this is the heir. Over here, let us kill him and let us have his inheritance. And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Final outrage. The final outrage. Now you may read this as I have and think, that doesn't make any sense at all. (laughs) That's not going to work. And my response to you is, you think sin makes sense? See, this is kind of the point. In fact, I I honestly think this is one of the major points of the whole Bible. Sin never works. Sin is never better. Sin has no future that you really want. And so, yes, this is, you know, criminals are not always known for their great foresight and thorough thinking. And and so they, yeah, this will work, right? Well, this is the guy who has the ultimate rights, so we kill him and we've got the ultimate rights. Well, they never would. It was a stupid, evil, wicked thing to do. But they do it, and they do it in a way that foreshadows what happens to Jesus, doesn't it? What do they do with Jesus? They drive him out of the city and crucify him. And so they take the son, and they take him out of the vineyard, and they, they kill him. Now, here's where it gets even more interesting, if that's possible. We've had these three movements of, of escalation. He sends a group, sends another group, sends his son, and then Jesus tells us how the parable ends, right? No, he doesn't. He doesn't tell us how the parable ends. So that brings us to capital letter C, where we have an interaction. And this is just brilliant. You say, Jesus is brilliant. That's so shocking to hear. No, it's really, really not. It's really not. It's just another day ending in Y for Jesus. 
interaction in verses 40 and 41, Jesus hands them the pen. And he says, in effect, you tell how the parable ends. Isn't that exactly what he does? What does verse 40 say? Therefore, when the Lord of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenant farmers? You tell me. What do you think he's going to do to these tenant farmers? Now, see, that's brilliant. His first question to them, the baptism of John, where did that come from? They said, uh, can't tell you. So he tells them a story, and it's just a story, and he says, so which son did the will of the father? And they say, okay, well, the first one. And they could not answer that, right? It's just a story. And so he does it again. <laughs> and he, he, he brings them to where they sign their own death warrant. That really is what they're doing. But he brings them in, and he says, so, you know, tell me, you've been listening to this shocking story. How do you suppose this story turns out? You tell me. What's the ending of this story? And well, they don't really have any choice but end this outrageous parable with exactly what's going to happen. They end it themselves. So Jesus hands them the pen, and they take the plunge. Verse 41, they take the plunge. They say to him, those bad men, badly will he destroy them. And the vineyard he will rent out to other tenant farmers, such as will repay to him the fruits in their seasons. So they take the plunge, or you could say they take the pen and plunge it into their own hearts. Because in condemning these tenant farmers, who are they condemning? Themselves. In their own words. <laughs> Jesus gets them to say in their own words what is going to happen to them. And this is going to happen to them. And so we saw in the Old Testament the evil end of those who didn't listen to the prophets. And they say there's going to be an evil end. I mean, you could translate that. Evil men, they will evilly. Bad men, they will badly. There's a, there's a play on words in, in the Greek text there. Translations struggle to capture, as I did, struggle also. But whether, whether blindly or helplessly, I mean, they may have not even been aware of what they're doing. I've seen that again and again. They, they may not even know that they're condemning themselves by what they say, or there's just nothing for it. I mean, how else could they end the parable? <laughs> what, what other possible end is there uh, to this parable? but exactly this. But, you know, it could very well be that they, <clears throat> they were incensed at the behavior of these horrible tenant farmers. I mean, do you recall a story like that, where somebody was told a story and he was really in, incensed at one of the persons in the story and by his reaction condemned himself? Who am I talking about? You're a sharp lot. That's right. When David sinned with Bathsheba and married her, made it all religious and proper, God sent Nathan the prophet and told David, the former shepherd, this story about a guy who had only one sheep who he dearly loved. Meanwhile, his neighbor has hundreds and thousands of them and doesn't need a thing. But when his neighbor gets a guest, rather than killing one of his, he takes the single sheep that belongs to this guy, the single beloved sheep of this guy, and kills it. And so Nathan says to David, so what do you suppose should happen to this guy? You know, he puts him in that position anyway. And, and David says, oh, the man who did this should be killed. And the man who did this and the man who did this. And what does Nathan say? You are the man. You are the man. And so David's greater son here does this very same thing with his enemies. And they describe exactly what should happen to them for their own perfidy, their own wickedness, and the evil which they're about to commit. So we've had the parable. Now it's time to have the pounding in verses 42 through 46. Jesus tells them a nice little story and then he whacks them. He whacks them and whacks them and whacks them. The pounding. <clears throat> First we have Christ's denouncing in verses 42 through 44. Christ denounces them. First of all, bringing up the subject of God's stone in verse 42. God's stone in verse 42, Jesus says to them, did you never read in the scriptures, whack, did you never read in the scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the head of the corner. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. Did you never read? He asked these people who are 
pride themselves in their knowledge of Scripture. Yeah, yeah, they know all sorts of stuff about Scripture, but they had neglected mercy and the weightier things of the law and had no love for God. And the absolute final proof of that is they had no love for God's Son. But boy, they knew a lot of things about Scripture. Sure didn't look like it, though, so he asked them, did you never read? And he quotes verbatim from Psalm 118. Uh, this is uh, the, the Greek translation called the, the Septuagint, which is just a straightforward translation of the Hebrew text. So he's, he's quoting a popular translation because I, I believe he, he taught in Greek usually. And this Psalm 118, though we don't think of it as much as we do 23rd, 22nd, 110th, this is quoted or alluded to a lot in the New Testament, uh, depending on who you read between 20 and 60 times. It's alluded to in the New Testament. And Jesus does here, the stone which the builders rejected. So the people who should be in charge of the building project and they should know what to do and they reject the stone, no, 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 that's not fit for what we're doing. But God takes that and makes it the head of the corner. Now, the head of the corner, what is that? I just translated it literally. You'll find different translations in in different versions because there's, there's a disagreement among scholars. The stone being the head of the corner, does that mean that it's the, the cornerstone of the foundation, setting the shape of the foundation? Or is it a keystone in an arch or where the walls meet? And the truth, it, it could be any of those things. And this whole passage kind of points in both directions because later Jesus talks about tripping over the stone, which makes it sound like a cornerstone. Then he talks about it falling on people, which makes it sound like a capstone. So either way, the point is obvious. The, the very stone that they reject becomes a key stone, a key part of the project. And why is that? Well, because God overrules them. God overrules their judgment. Their judgment and God's judgment is not the same. They want nothing to do with it. God makes it everything, makes it the key focal stone. And this is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Well, that's a fit thing to say at the end of a marvelous parable. And by marvelous, meaning astonishing, shocking, rocking, rollicking. You would never... You would never see the parable going that way. Well, indeed, you would never see the mission of God's Son going that way. After generation after generation of rejected prophets, God sends His Son, and Israel responds by crucifying Him. And rejected by the builders, though, God takes His crucified Son, raises Him, raises him from the dead, and exalts Him to His right hand. And will one day make Him the king will reign from Israel. But Jesus is this stone. Jesus is the stone Jesus is talking about. And the, the passage we started the service with in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter also identifies Jesus as that stone. I'll just read to you, but you can note down 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. Speaking of Jesus, Peter expounds, and coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men. And that word rejected means judged as unworthy, unfit, tried and found wanting. Men, men do not find it worth building on. But is choice and precious in the sight of God. He chooses it and he, hire, he values it highly. Verse 6, for this is contained in Scripture. And here he quotes from Isaiah 28. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes upon him will not be put to shame. This precious value then, Peter says, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, then he quotes Psalm 118, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this they were also appointed. So the stone is Jesus and it is the key stone because of God's decree and God's program. That's the stone. Then secondly, we encounter the kingdom in verse 33. And this is that very uh, divide, well, let's see, we got a verse that is a point of division among Christians. I'll, I'll tell you a bit about that. 
uh, God's kingdom in verse 43, Jesus says, on account of this I say to you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and will be given to a nation bearing its fruit. What is he talking about? So let's just break it down and understand it. Asking a couple of questions, and they're simple, obvious questions. First, taken away from whom? Letter A. Taken away from whom? Well, I want to make sure you have time to write that. Taken away from whom? And the answer of a great many Christians, some of the best Christians, some of the best students and teachers of the Bible, the answer that they give is the kingdom of God is taken away from Israel and given to the church. This is where Israel loses, and this is one of their favorite proof texts. This is called replacement theology, although the replacement theology people don't like that label much, or or many of them don't like it much, but it is the idea that the church replaces Israel. Um, They prefer to use other terms such as the church is the full realization of Israel, it is spiritual Israel, it's new Israel, it is uh, God's people, which we can spiritually call Israel and so forth. But the point is, Israel as a nation doesn't have a future in God's program. They forfeited it. They forfeited their future by their rejection of Christ. And this is a verse they go to because, well, I mean, how obvious can you get? God takes the kingdom away from Israel and he gives it to the church. Bada bing, bada boom. I mean, that's it right there. Uh, A a great scholar, A.T. Robertson, says, it was the death knell of the Jewish nation with their hopes of political and religious world leadership. So all those prophecies in the Old Testament, Isaiah 2 and so forth, about Israel being the capital of the millennial kingdom, forget that. That's all spiritual now. It's not about Israel at all. That's their view, but... I would say that view is not possible for a number of reasons. It's not possible. For one thing, I'm not ready to give up the whole Old Testament, (laughs) which is what I'd have to do if if I went with that. All these specific prophecies about a future for Israel that is still, despite their sin, promised by God, because God unconditionally promised to them, promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that land. And David, that he'd have a son to rule over his... uh, his kingdom from his throne in Jerusalem. These are all unconditional promises. You can't just wipe those out by a little bit of hermeneutical magic, you know, and and, and sleight of hand. You can't just do that. It it makes the Old Testament incomprehensible. Nobody would read that and take that meaning from it. Um, So given all the Old Testament promises, but also I I don't have to look any further than, than this verse. Does this verse say, on account of this I say, to Israel that the kingdom of God will be taken away from Israel? Does it say that? That was not a trick question. Does it say that? Does it say, I say to Judah, I say to Jerusalem? Well, what does he say? He says, I say to you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. Now, here's that part where I said at the start of the sermon, this is a very important thing. Remember that part? This is where that goes. Who's Jesus talking to? He's talking to the leaders. He's talking to the religious leaders. He's not talking to the whole nation of Israel. He's talking to these guys, the appointed leaders of Israel, who are challenging his authority. We saw that in verse 23, I remind you. It's the chief priests and the elders talking to him. And verse 45 is absolutely foolproof, should be. And when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they knew that he is speaking concerning who? Them. So this is, they are the ones from whom the kingdom of God is being taken away. It's being taken away from that generation of leaders. Remember back in chapter 12 about the leaders blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And Jesus saying, your house is left to you desolate. And in chapter 23, the whole chapter is denouncing them and ends with words that promise that Jesus will come again for Israel, we'll get, we'll get there in just a moment. We'll look at that verse. But, um, so no, it's not talking about the king. And none of his apostles thought that's what he said too. And this is very important. Turn to Acts chapter 1. There's an easy one to find. Do turn there with me, please. Acts chapter 1, the resurrected Jesus has been teaching about the kingdom of God. For days and days after his resurrection. That, that's, his, that's his topic. Verse 3. He's been speaking about the things concerning the kingdom of God. And so, having heard 
day after day after day of intensive post-resurrection teaching about the kingdom of God, what question do they ask in verse 6? Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Now, did they think that Israel had forever lost the kingdom of God? Clearly not. Yet even so good and great a man as John Calvin, who was a great handler of the Bible, says about this verse that everything about that question was wrong, wrong, wrong. Now that's what Calvin thinks. My question is, is that what Jesus thinks? Because the next, and I, I'm an admirer of Calvin, I'm not, I'm not dinging on Calvin. He's a great handler of the Bible, but everybody has his bad days. And this was one of my brother Calvin's. <laughs> because look at verse 7, Jesus does not say, Oh, you dolts, I've just been teaching you for weeks that Israel's done. Why do you ask such a stupid question? I better send the Holy Spirit right away. (laughs) He doesn't say that, does he? He says, it's not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has set by his own authority. In other words, I'm not going to tell you if now is when the kingdom is restored to Israel, but he does not challenge that the kingdom will be restored to Israel because that's not what he's saying here or anywhere else. He's not saying that the kingdom of God is no longer for the nation of Israel. So, taken away from whom, we've answered, the leaders. Letter B, given to whom? Well, Jesus says to a nation bearing its fruits. And so people say, see, that's the church. Well, the church, there may be one verse that refers to the church as a nation. That's in Second Peter. But it is not normally called nation. In the plural, nations usually actually speaks of Gentile, but the singular nation speaks of the nation of Israel, usually, as I'll show you. Now, now let me just ask you an illustrative question that I think will help. Is, and, and this is sort of a trick question, so feel free not to answer me. But is the nation of Germany the nation of Hitler? Is the nation of, is, common, a present tense, the nation of Germany, the nation of Hitler? And you p- probably want to say, well, yes and no. I mean, it is Germany, so it's the same nation. But the Germany of today is standing with Israel in the international court against the charge of genocide. They're standing with Israel. So no, the nation of Germany today is not the nation of Germany of Hitler's day. So it is the same nation, it's Germany, but it's a very different nation. It's a very different Germany. Do you understand me as far as we go so far? So similarly, when Jesus is saying this, he's saying the kingdom of God is taken away from you, but it'll be given to a nation, nation of Israel, that is very much not you. I can show you a pair of passages that does that same thing. Turn to Isaiah again. That's a pretty easy book to find. So turn to Isaiah chapter 1. That's a pretty easy chapter to find. So enjoy that because the next one will be a little harder. But uh, Isaiah chapter 1, and uh, this, this is a, a glorious chapter, just a, a wonderful beginning to the book. But there's a little uh, word play in Hebrew in verse 4. He says, Hoi goichote. Alas, sinning nation. Now, notice that. Alas, sinful nation. People heavy with iniquity. Seed of evildoers. Sons who act corruptly. They've forsaken Yahweh. They've spurned the Holy One of Israel. They've become estranged from Him. And he goes on to say, there's no even place left to spank you. Every part of you is bruised. You've been disciplined, disciplined, disciplined. So that's, nation, that's Israel, the sinful nation. But now turn to chapter 26. And even though it's harder to find than chapter 1, it'll be worth the trip. Chapter 26 of Isaiah and verse 2. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the one that keeps faithfulness. The righteous nation. Now, who's he talking about there? What nation is he talking about? Well, you don't have to look very far, do you? Just look at verse 1. <laughs> It'll be sung in the land of Judah. Well, but wait a minute. I go back to chapter 1. Who's the sinful nation? Again, verse 1 says, it's a vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So in Isaiah 1.6, Judah is a sinful nation headed for judgment. In Isaiah 26.2, it's a righteous nation 
headed into the millennial kingdom, the messianic kingdom. Two nations? No. Same nation. The text says it's Judah, but a very different Judah. This is the Judah of the future that God brings to repentance and faith. As the Bible clearly predicts, as Paul clearly says, God converts Israel and brings them to faith in Christ. So, same national entity, but a very different nation, a repentant nation. And Jesus says the same thing. So, where are we? We're in Matthew chapter 21. All you have to do is turn over to Matthew chapter 23. And I'd say this is probably worth the trip too. Isaiah chapter 23, by which I mean Matthew chapter 23. Although Isaiah 23 is a good chapter too, but we're going to look at Matthew 23. Now this just is so helpful in understanding this verse we're puzzling over. You'll see it. Matthew 23 verses 37 through 39. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Now pretend that you had advanced degrees in biblical interpretation Who do you think Jesus is talking about when he says Jerusalem? Well, it may help you to know that in the Greek, it means Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to to her. What does that make you think of? The slaves the landowner sends to the vineyard, who they kill and stone. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you, who's you then? It's not the children, it's the leaders. You did not want it. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Until, until. And that day's coming. One day Jerusalem will say, of Jesus, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Because God will bring them to repentance and will restore the kingdom to Israel. But not for the leaders, the unrepentant leaders of Jesus' day. You see? Say yes. Then I can go on. Number three, we see God's judgment in verse 44. Jesus says, and he who has fallen on this stone will be dashed to pieces, and on whoever it falls, it will scatter him as dust. So verse 43 was kind of good news, bad news, or bad news, good news. Kingdom will be taken away from you, but it will be given to a nation who will bear the fruit of it. This verse is bad news, bad news. So you can either fall on Jesus, you can stumble on him, and you're doomed, or he can fall on you, in which case you're doomed. (laughs) But there's no way around Jesus. Uh, Jesus, the, the, The person who rejects and rebels against Jesus does not stand a chance and will come to a bad end, just like the tenant farmers in that vineyard. Do you notice in this this whole passage, this whole section, verses 33 through 46, we really have the the career of Jesus sketched out, don't we? Verses 38 and 39, he's the son who is cast out of the vineyard and he's put to death. And yet in verse 41, his father avenges him. And even though he is rejected, verse 42, he is resurrected and he's exalted by God. And verse 44, he crushes all his enemies. So you see, there, there is no defeating Jesus. There, there simply is no way around Jesus. As these farmer tenants imagine, there was a time when they could stall their end, but they could only stall it so long. The end was a sure and a certain thing. So the best and wisest thing is to make peace with Jesus now, because there is no happy future to the person who will not do that. There's no happy future to the person who will do that. It's like Psalm 2 says, I'll just read to you, but Psalm 2 is about Jesus the King. And the last verse says, Kiss the Son lest He become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are they who take refuge in Him. Well, there it is. There's there's the, the message of this section. That though there may be a time of mercy, that time is a, is a limited shelf life. It is, a, it is a limited time deal. And we don't know when that last moment is, but there will be a last moment. So now is the time for making peace with God 
through Christ. And, and did, they, did they do that? Because they had another opportunity, didn't they? Jesus sure didn't pull any punches. I mean, he said it straight up to them. So they had another opportunity. Yet another time when they could have said, I see my fate written out now, and I don't want that fate. I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to fall on my knees. I'm going to make peace with God through his Messiah. They could have done that. Nothing external prevented them from doing it. But what do we see instead? We see their darkening in verses 45 and 46. We see their darkening. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they knew that he is speaking concerning them. Well then, what a wonderful opportunity to hear this warning and heed it. Amen? What a wonderful opportunity. And those seeking to seize him, they were afraid of the crowds since they were regarding him as a prophet. So for them, it was only a matter of time. They decided what they were going to do with him. They're pierced to the heart, but you know that can go two ways. (laughs) In Acts chapter 2, the people of Israel who hear Peter's preaching, they're pierced to the heart. And their response is to say, what can we do? And they're told to repent and be baptized. In chapter 7, the leaders are, are infuriated in their hearts. They're sawn in their hearts by Stephen's preaching. And their, result, their, their response is to kill Stephen, to stone him to death. So in this case, they just calcify their hearts. They just darken in their unbelieving rage against Jesus. And what excuse do they have? What excuse do they have at this point? They've got no excuse. They've seen Jesus' bona fides. They've seen his resume. They've seen everything that shows him to be the Messiah. And they've had spelled out for them what the, what the fate is if they choose to rebel against him. And they just do that. No excuse. It's like Paul says in Romans 1, no excuse. But what a warning to us. Amen. What a warning to us. This is the the bad end of bad religion. This is the bad end of bad religion. Let me just give you a clue. How do you tell if your religion is a bad religion? Everybody's religious, so let's not not waste time on, well, I'm not religious. Yes, you are. We all are. It's inescapable. But if your religion does not bring you to the foot of the cross, if your religion does not bring you to Jesus for salvation, it's a bad religion. And this is the bad end of bad religion. And the Lord Jesus tells us something about the gospel, doesn't he? There have been so many men who have tried to massage the gospel into something that's not offensive to unbelievers. So they saw off hell and judgment and, and the wrath of God, and they just present it in positive terms, you know. You want to be happier? You want to have purpose in your life? You want to know that you got God on the horn, you know, it's 24-7, 365? Talk to him any time? Well, just come to Jesus. Try him. Try him for... 30 days, as, as one religious leader said. And that's the gospel to these people. But I see here the gospel is the whole story. Why you need the gospel, and one of the reasons why you and I need the gospel is the wrath of God. It's our sin and the wrath of God. Only God can save us from the wrath of God. And he does that by sending his son to die for his people. So our Lord Jesus will be vindicated and he will reign supreme and all who've not trusted in him will come under the judgment of God. So the great thing for us then is to know him now and as Psalm 2 says, to kiss the son and to take refuge in him because he is the only place to be safe from the wrath of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word, and the clarity with which it speaks to us, the power with which it speaks to us. We pray the Holy Spirit will send it to the heart of each person here to do your work to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.